Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in a rather empty capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Guy Pomeroy, Managing Director of Starkstorm, a, med- a medical device firm located in Middlesex. Guy, hello. Good morning, Matthew. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for taking time out of what I'm sure is a, a manically busy uh, time for you. Let's just address it straight off the uh, off the bat here. What's going on with yourselves? How is COVID-19 affecting your business? As you can imagine, Matthew, these are unprecedented times. Uh, and as a business that provides medical equipment and we both install and maintain it going forward for the NHS, these are challenging times and we've been designated as key workers. So we're doing everything we can to make sure that we can continue to provide the level of support that we can do to our best to the NHS because we know that it's testing times for them especially. Now, have you stopped manufacturing uh, non-essential items and just uh, moved over to what is essential or are you continuing your normal production process? No, we've we're continuing to produce equipment at the moment, which um, is still essential because we provide equipment into operating rooms and into ICU and high dependency units. Mm. And clearly there's going to be um, you know, a growing requirement for that at the moment. So the factory is still working. We've introduced social distancing. Uh, we've um, increased significantly the facilities for uh, hand washing. Uh, all of our staff that are able to work from home or are home, those that are home based are continuing to be home based, but we've uh, decanted everybody who's office based in uh, either of our locations uh, and they're all now working from home. And we indeed will be shutting the office that we have in Middlesex today and uh, we will be confined to producing out of our production facility in Leicester. Um, now, are you increasing the amount of uh, shifts that you have in the uh, facility or at this moment in time, do you not see that as practicable? Uh, at the moment, we haven't had to because we're still continuing to produce for a lot of project-based work that we do. But we have started to get requests for some of our equipment to go into temporary facilities mm-hmm. and we will be ramping up our production accordingly. Uh, I'm very fortunate that I've got a great team, many of whom have been with us for many years, and they're all digging in to do their level best. You know, clearly people are a little bit anxious Mm -hmm. because this is something that none of us can see and is something that we're all vulnerable to. So everybody's quite anxious, and I'm doing my best to make sure that we keep them well informed and that we take the right decisions to mean that we keep them as safe as possible for as long as possible. And also, you know, as I said before, and I alluded to, we've got field service engineers who are home-based, and they're based throughout the UK, and they're on standby to go out to hospitals if required to maintain our equipment because a lot of it is... um, fairly technical stuff with power supply and, and the facilities to um, operate operating theatres and provide lighting and the like. So we're stood to do, stood to, to do the best we can, really. Now, other than staying at home and staying in, is there anything else that the listeners at home can do to help the national effort on this, uh, even by making, making something at home or, or something of that nature? 
I think that the, the, the problem with that is is making sure that people have all the tools and equipment that they need. So obviously, our, our field service engineers have fully equipped vans and the tools that they need to do their job based with them at home. So it's about getting spares to them, and, and currently we're still able to do that. So that's if that's required. And we've got a good stock of parts in the factory, and we're continuing to produce the equipment to meet the orders that we've already had. And, you know, we we expect the NHS to want to keep functioning because it has to. And it's up to us, really. And we've got a duty to do our bit to make sure that we we keep them as, you know, as good as possible and keep them up to speed with all their equipment. So some of our projects are still going on. Do you think looking forward uh, post-corona uh, um, that supply lines and supply chains will change to be more domestically oriented? I think that's likely. I think that the people are now being a bit more reflective. I mean, globalization has been a huge thing over the last 20 or 30 years. And I think people will be reflecting on what they're able to do locally and what they're able to buy locally. And, and clearly, we're all hoping that as many businesses as possible survive this. You know, they will need government support to do so. But hopefully, they'll be in a position that when this passes and whatever passes for the new normal, uh, comes into being, then we're all able to continue functioning. Well, we have That's seen we have seen in the past weeks uh, countries putting export bans on items, yeah. um, supply chains unable to to cope, international supply chains unable to cope with imports of uh, key goods, and also there is there has been uh, in the past uh, decade or so a growing chorus amongst the environmental movement uh, that all this uh, global globally sourced uh, items is harmful to the uh, environment. Uh, I think. Uh, are we at a turning point with globalism? Is this the death of globalism? I don't know if it will be the death of globalism, but I think it will be a shift. Mm. And people will be more thoughtful about how reliant they are on external suppliers. I mean, some of our equipment, whilst we produce the majority in the UK, we are reliant on certain components that come in from within the European Union. Mm-hmm. And that is likely to continue. And we would hope that a, a fully functioning agreement, notwithstanding everything that's going on at the moment, can be reached with the European Union so that we can continue to provide that equipment. But we do look to source a lot of equipment locally, which we do. And I think others will do much the same. And I think the same will be said for food and other medical products and the like and pharmaceuticals. But again, it's about the economies of scale and what we're able to produce locally, I suppose, for what is a fairly large and growing population. Well, let's shift back to the subject of leadership, the one that we actually should have been discussing from the beginning. (laughs) Um, I always like to start off the conversation with simply asking a question, and that is, what does the word leader mean to you? I think it's very difficult to define it in a simple term. And I think, again, I have the privilege of having had a military career before my commercial one. And and I think that the most I can think of really is that you're a facilitator as a leader, you know, and it's up to you to coach and enthuse and direct the team to get the best out of them, whatever that outcome may be, whether it's commercial success or or, or winning a, a sports match. You know, and I think there's various techniques that you have to employ depending dependent on the situation as much as anything. Now, 
when it comes to leadership and your own capabilities, uh, where do you draw your inspiration from? Was there someone early on in your uh, career that shaped the way that you lead today or is it ever evolving? I think it's ever evolving. And I think that, you know, you'd be supremely arrogant if you thought you sort of were the finished article and didn't need to continue to learn. And I suppose in some ways that in keeping with most people, when I started out in my career, I didn't really have what I would call leadership ambitions. And I think it was really that being in the army brought those out of me. Mm-hmm. And I think when you, when you talk about people who set examples, I don't think there's one person who set a specific example. And I did give this some thought, and there are probably half a dozen people in the course of my career that I've drawn upon certain lessons I've learned from them that I try and emulate in the way that I do what I do, you know, and, and that's across both a military uh, career and a civilian one. Of course, uh, a military career provides you with many different skills, uh, structured thinking, uh, critical thinking, uh, and the ability to uh, to be resilient under pressure. Do you think these are uh, skills that young people uh, coming into the workplace today uh, have, or are they lacking them? That's it's difficult because I think that the the nature of the environment at the moment with modern communications and unfortunately social media mean that people have a different approach. They also when when I entered into adulthood and work, if you like, we still did a lot of sport and we did a lot of team games and things were done in a completely different way. And I think that people learn resilience by experience. And I think that, you know, unfortunately, what we're going through at the moment, a lot of people will come out of the other side of this, all being well, a lot more resilient as a result, because they will realize what they're actually capable of doing. Mm -hmm. And I I can liken it almost to um, training recruits when they join the military, many of whom have not done much fitness training this and I left 20 years ago so I'm talking about people of 20 years ago and it may well still be the same you know they don't understand what they're capable of and it's only by showing them what they can do and and also leading by example dare I say it where you you show that you can do it so they can do it too Mm. Uh, and that's that's only one facet but it's about really I think young people don't know what they're capable of and it's only when they're in adversity that they actually get to test that and see what boundaries they can actually, you know, go for. And I think that they're, they're often a lot further than they think they can do. And it's up to us, really, to draw that out of them. Well, I think uh, you know, these, these are things that are certainly be uh, seen in the coming days, in the coming months, uh, this, yeah. this test for, for our society in general. And I think I agree with you that, that people will come through this stronger uh, and yeah. uh, they have it in them, even though they don't know it. Unfortunately, our time together has drawn to its close. But before I let you go, what does the next 12 months have in store for Starkstorm? Well, one of the things we've been doing is we've clearly we, we're now facing what's unprecedented, really, in, in, in any of our lifetimes. And uh, I know people will consider back to the Second World War being particularly difficult for the population. I think we're on a similar footing where everybody is focused on the same thing, which is beating this um, COVID-19 as best we can. And we've all got to pull together to do it. Mm. But I think from our perspective, looking beyond that, as we, as it will do, you know, we will get to the other side of this. Our aim is we're currently introducing some new products, which will be very exciting for our sales team to take out there. 
and offer to the National Health Service and some of our private healthcare providers, and also some of the equipment that we've been producing for quite a while now, we're refreshing. And we've got a couple of new items that will come out, which I hope uh, will take us back to where we belong at the top of our little part of the business. Well, Guy, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing leadership with you. And I wish you and the whole team at Stockstorm the best of luck in the coming weeks and months. And when this is over, I'd like to have you back on the program so we can have a bit of a debrief. Uh, Guy, thank you. Thank you, Matthew. That was Guy Pomeroy, Managing Director of Stockstorm. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, we're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Oh, there, there are one or two people who are very familiar um, uh, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex, uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool. Many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and, um, yes, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be <laughs> playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where... Um, so Jeff Hurst was a, a first-class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or, or football, obviously the importance of leadership, it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess. He would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd work with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood and, of course, a great manager in Sir Ralph Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that calibre can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's, that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager like, like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peters? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the calibre of the players I did. Again, mm-hmm. again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain. 
um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy in the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly all walks of life. Leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships. And you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership. And that's why I'm very fortunate to involved in my career in those early days with two two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously, uh, after uh, at West Ham, your uh, plan came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man, I'm sure, when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge when it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who, who had on me um, as a person. Um, mm. Naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand. Whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you, it can have a great impact on your <laughs> your career and of course your life. But yep. in that era, I was involved for six or seven years. He, it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very, very strict. Probably at a time, maybe overly strict, but at a time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across, and very few people. And he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn for you. And you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organization, one thing I have learned and I've taken on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in a group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious things I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think, uh, a, a specific moment? I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now, that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team or certainly in the squad, and surprising they were not. 
there was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of a group. Um, so that that's that for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was I was playing. And I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be playing in, in the team. But in a couple of friendly games, more friendly games, before the final in Poland and uh, Norway, I think, in Denmark, mm. I didn't. I played two of the four games. And I probably didn't quite replicate my, my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England. And he, he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay, he started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Allen. So I, mm. I had the, the impact of thinking I, at that stage I, like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back into it because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Green's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out. Mm. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot and it's there and people, players talk about, people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Alf showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were a very... I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Um, we have some great players, but overall, they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realise there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I... I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about twenty minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? 
And of course, I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal. And I looked round, put my foot on the ball and looked round for a little while and said, oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's, uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke and make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited to just have a, look, have a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there are. There certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you too. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stu- stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely. But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we. Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want. You got time. I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay. So I was uh, doing a, a, at a dinner in the you know, Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about twenty minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening, and there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I had a somebody at the back who who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Is- uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like I that. But then again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it, it, uh, um, it did but make then again, laugh if you laugh If you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. <laughs> um, but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff, I think. Um, you, you were a young man when... See, this happened when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by, by one way or the other, people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are there are people who pay you compliments of the fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and of course in, uh, England fans who um, I, I think probably uh, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. No, um, well, it, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it, uh, perhaps. Um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a uh, helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch is people must realise that that's, that has an influence, how you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team latterly. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you 
as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader? Um, well, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's have a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolute leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson, who's just absolutely, mm. you've got to take him as the first example, but Klopp's only done this for a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, and subsequently since he's gone, how they they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen, we've seen, we've probably ever seen. And I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think, could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think, yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah, the answer is straightforward. The answer is yes. Um, they, <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, and I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were very fortunate, and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that, many. yeah, so many, and that's why we we're successful because we had so many. Um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team, I think that that was outstanding, and uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody. And going back from an earlier earlier question for me, that um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days. Every year, uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on with, all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. the, um, uh, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. 
And I wouldn't and, when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those, I would pick every one of the eleven players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else; they were all outstanding, and I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We have some great and players. You- we have some great players, of course, but without the attitude <laughs> alongside that, going back to an earlier question. You, we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the, the the whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word the word is team. the word is t- the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes you know, together, everyone achieves more, and that that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly. Uh, Jeff, looking, if, if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, uh, single-mindedness dedication, dedication to the job, um, thinking about that, that, that role, that job in leadership, all the time. It's a huge part of your life. But it, you, I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation, and I think that's you completely focus. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over this, go over the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland its parent company, or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.